Welcome to Never Just a Dog. I'm your host, John Littlefair, and I'm so delighted to bring you this episode. My guest is the very amazing Mary Frances O'Connor, who is an associate professor at the University of Arizona, a world-renowned grief expert and neuroscientist. She is the author of The Grieving Brain, a book that I absolutely adore, where Mary Frances explains the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. On the Oprah Daily website, her book is listed in the top 10 best books to comfort a grieving friend. So let's dive into this amazing conversation. Mary Frances, thank you so much for joining me and also for your amazing book. Thank you so much. So when was that published? Was that about a year ago or two years ago? Yeah, year and a half. February 2022, the hardback came out. It just sort of continues to, you know, it's taken on a life of its own, so to speak. I think, you know, it feels like people are really connecting with it and that the timing that it came at a, an important time for people. I'm fascinated by your journey to becoming a world-renowned grief researcher. Where did this all begin for you? You know, I think the personal and the scientific sort of get interwoven. I, you know, I went into clinical psychology because I was so fascinated by emotion and trying to figure out uh, how to help people who are having really strong emotions. But, you know, probably that came about in part from having experienced my my own loss at some level and so you know my when i was about 13 years old my mother was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer and it meant that she went through a very long period of treatment and 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 grief um her own grief and then after she passed away the grief of of my family and what it meant mostly was that I just felt really comfortable talking with people who were grieving. It didn't, it didn't put me off. And so perhaps because of that, doing research studies with people who were grieving, you know, it meant I could really get into deep conversations with them. It didn't bother me if they, if they cried. Or, and so that enabled me maybe to go a little deeper than some researchers might have. In your book, you make an important distinction between grief and grieving. I'd love to explore this further with you. Most of us, of course, use the word grief and grieving interchangeably. But at some point in my, in my research, I realized they're actually pretty different. So grief is that moment in time, right? It's that emotion when you just become overwhelmed with a wave of grief, for example. And it might be a moment where I'm measuring your heart rate or you're in a, in, a, in a neuroimaging scanner and I'm taking a picture of your brain. But grieving, on the other hand, is the way that grief changes over time, right? It's the process of how grief changes, how it, well, for example, the first hundred times you have a wave of grief, you it, it could be so awful you think, I'm not even going to get through this moment. But then somehow the hundred and first time, it might feel just as awful, but it is familiar, 
right? You know you're going to get through that moment. And so grieving really is the way that we learn to adapt to the fact that we have grief. It isn't that grief will go away. Grief is just a a natural reaction when we're aware of something so important that's missing. But grieving means that we get better at understanding how to seek comfort in that moment or how to accept the reality of what has happened and, and to continue to restore a life for ourselves. And to quote some words from your book, grieving or learning to live a meaningful life without your loved one is ultimately a type of learning. And speaking of learning, explain neuroscience to me. Neuroscience is looking into the black box of the brain, so to speak. It's really trying to understand how this organ we carry around in our skull, how does it enable us to do and think and feel all of the things that we do and think and feel? And so it's very interested in what are the mechanisms? How, how does information get encoded? And, and where in the brain do we locate memories or emotions? And so neuroscience is kind of the study of, of all of that. That's fantastic. I think I can hear the monsoon. I love it's it. It's really going to come down here in a moment. <laughs> yeah, that'll be perfect. It's winter in Australia. It's cold. It's raining one day and sort of sunshine in the next, but uh, our cold is not too cold in Perth. I'd love to know what is happening inside the brain for someone that has deep grief and also as a lead on to grieving. Well, it's important that when we talk about grief, of course, first we have to talk about love. We have to talk about the fact that your brain encodes a relationship, that, that you are bonded with another being. And when that bonding happens, it changes your brain. It changes the physiology, the way your brain, with the way proteins are folded or the way that, that neurons connect to each other. And so then what that means is when we're in a relationship, we develop these predictions, right? We predict the world. We predict we're going to see our loved one at the end of the day. We predict that we might, you know, care for them uh, if they're sick or with a dog. You might go for a walk at a very particular time of day. And, and this becomes just a part of you, a part of how you understand the world. Grief, then, is the response to the fact that they're not there that we can't do all of those habits, that our prediction that that loved one is there, that prediction is not, is not right anymore. And that loss is also an updating of neural connections in the brain, that it takes time, we might think of time as grieving, to change that update, to, to change that prediction. So that, you know, if you every morning have gotten up and the first thing you do is you let your dog out, then, then for many, many, many days, you will continue to, you know, leap out of bed to head for the door because that's the prediction that you have, that you wake up in the world with. Even though you know that your dog is, is maybe not there, but the, but the habit and the prediction remains until your brain can really 
understand uh, and predict something different. Predict that that is not uh, the first thing that you should do when you wake up in the morning. We think of attachment bonds. In psychology, we call it attachment. When we're in a relationship, and and the whole function of that relationship is to motivate us to reunite with our loved one, right? So that we have the opportunity to explore the world, knowing that we have that person to come home to for comfort and safety and support and encouragement and and fun. And so that is the whole purpose of those attachment bonds. And the brain uses really powerful neurochemicals to create that motivation. So dopamine and oxytocin. And, and what it means is that we're motivated to, to seek out that, that person or being when we've been apart from them. And that works extremely well when, when that relationship is ongoing, when that, when that being is alive. But of course, it, it, the motivation can still be there even when we can no longer reunite with them, we, when we won't see them when we get home at the end of the day. And, and that painful sort of slap in the face of reality happens for a long time. And I think that, you know, just to, just to sort of put a, a point on how much the brain prioritizes our relationship. We actually know from animal research, from animal neuroscience, that there are specific neurons in the brain that are encoding when we're approaching a loved one. So they, they fire only when we're approaching the, the being to whom we are attached. Now, this research is among pair-bonded, we call them voles, they're little rodents that run around in North America, and they bond for life. So they have a preference for each other over any other vole once they've bonded. And, and there are specific neurons that will fire in the brain when one partner is approaching the other one that would never fire for another, for a different vole. So the brain is devoting a lot of resources, a lot of effort and energy and, and neurochemistry to motivate us to, to reunite. And I think that explains some of the power, the painfulness, uh, when we're not able to do that. That's so interesting what you just said. One of the greatest parts of the book that I was so fascinated with, when you talk about overlapping circles, I believe it's referring to a psychologist, Arthur Aaron. Would you be able to explain more about that? Because that was incredible. There's kind of a common understanding. I think people intuitively, if you say, how close are you and your sister? Or how close are you and your dad? That is a question that makes sense to us, right? Like we can tell you, oh yeah, I am really close to my dad. Or I used to be close to my sister, but now we're not anymore. And you can even think of drawing that closeness, that overlap between yourself and the other person. And so if you can imagine two circles for, for people who aren't very close, the circles might, you know, one for you and one for me, and they might be sort of next to each other. But, but there's uh, some relationships where we can actually think of those circles as overlapping so that uh, the, the us is as is a big part of who I am. So, you know, we use even the, even the words we use to describe ourselves. If I describe myself as a sister, 
that implies there's another person in the world, right? I use the word to describe myself, but actually it's telling you there's another circle in the world, someone who I may have this overlapping relationship with. And I think that it's it's a, a way of understanding that the us uh, is a part of me in addition to to just me. And that, that I think for many people, that's why they feel like they've lost a part of themselves when they lose that other person, because they have. Who, you know, a- am I a... Am I a daughter if my mother has died? Am I a am I a parent if my child has died? That that those relationships really make up who we are. So when we think of closeness, we can think about, you know, it's intuitively a, a, a term that makes sense to us. If I say, How close are you and your sister? You know what you know what I mean. You know what I'm asking. And we can even think of that in we could even draw that. So if you think of uh, you as one circle and the other person as a separate circle, if you're not close with them, you could sort of put those two circles next to each other. But if you are close with that person, you could think of those circles as actually overlapping so that there's a big portion that's that's us, right? The we. And so those overlapping circles, I think, really help to explain why when we lose someone, when someone dies, it feels like part of us is missing because I think the brain actually encodes that sense of we, right? So if I use the word daughter or I use the word sister, I'm using that as a description of myself, but it actually implies there's someone else in the world. And so that that loss of, uh, of, of a sense of oneself is because relationships make up who we are. This explains so much, especially when someone mentions they're feeling like a part of them is missing. There are many conversations that I have with grieving pet lovers and one comment comes up consistently and that is, am I going crazy to feel this way? I shouldn't be feeling this way, but the pain is so intense. I think a lot of people do think they're going crazy. And part of that, I think, is because grief is often much more intense than we are expecting. I will tell you that, you know, I've been a grief researcher for a long time and I, uh, you know, my my mother had died and I... When when we put my first dog to sleep, you know, I was in my early 40s and it was so intense and and so unexpected, the the thoughts and feelings and, and more just the intensity of them that even someone who knows what grief is like can be totally shocked by by how it feels. And so I think that makes us think, well, this must be abnormal. This can't be, this can't be right. But it turns out that this is very common. So the vast majority of us are reacting in a totally typical way. As a society, we don't tend to talk about grief very much. And so many of us don't really know what other people have experienced when they had grief. And and I think that's part of why shows like this are so important, podcasts where people can actually talk about what it what it feels like so that you feel a little less crazy when it happens to you. You so have to tell me about your dog. 
Mm. My dog. I never have did it. I never had a dog as a child. My mother wouldn't let us. And so I didn't get to experience the joy of a dog until I was in my late 20s. An Australian shepherd named Lila, just so neurotic <laughs> and so intelligent, um, who had a best friend that, uh, that she would herd and chase and moved with me from Arizona, where I adopted her. She was a rescue to California, and then eventually back to Arizona, where we used to joke that she had gone for retirement. And she uh, she loved to swim, so she got to swim in Arizona in our pool. And, uh, and it was in our backyard that a really beloved vet came and, and euthanized her there. I learned so much from her. I learned about dogs. But I learned about me, and I learned about how humans and dogs can relate to each other and, you know, what made her more anxious and less anxious. And, uh, you know, just I learned so much from her that I, that, I, that I still carry and still use, not just with dogs, but with people as well, what makes them anxious and less anxious. And I don't know how long it was, a year, maybe a little more than a year. My my ex-wife and I adopted another dog, uh, Hannah, a white Labrador, but but Hannah is currently with my ex, and so uh, I don't see Hannah, but I know she is alive and well and uh, enjoying her uh, enjoying her time here as well. Wonderful, a fellow dog lover. Here we go. Yeah, they are really uh, you know. I think one of the things, because my sister is a my sister is a cat lover, and she, you know, when her first cat died, she had such extraordinary grief. Again, I think she was not expecting the intensity of of that experience. And what really struck me at the time is our animals, our pets, are often the beings with whom we are most vulnerable. We are often, you know, at our best, at our worst. We seek comfort with them. We offer them care in a way that uh, we might feel, you know, uncomfortable offering to another human being. So that unguarded relationship can mean that the closeness, that overlapping circle is, is very important. And that the loss then is unique, is so unique for, for those of us who have really bonded with an animal. Thank you so much for this. And I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's also a desire for people who have not experienced intense loss themselves to want the other person to just feel better, right? Often very very well intentioned you know we want you to engage in in life again we want you to feel better but it isn't very reflective of of the experience of the person you know at the heart of the matter so i think you know grief is just this natural reaction that we have and we don't really get to say what that's going to be like over time, many of us can learn how to regulate the emotions that overcome us, and many of us learn to build a life around the fact that we have loss 
And those are wonderful things and very important. But to take away the, the experience of loss, it doesn't make any sense because knowing about loss informs us about love, informs us about life. It means that we, uh, we find things meaningful and precious in, in time and relationships now because we understand how fragile they are. So I think, you know, taking away the idea of loss, it just, it, I think it's misguided. And, you know, this may surprise uh, your listeners, but there's even actually a neuroimaging study of the loss of a pet. So we have some neuroimaging studies of grief over a living loved, or, you know, grief over a, a human loved one. But actually, one of the earliest studies was uh, about pet loss. And, you know, it doesn't look very different in the brain when we're talking about pet loss than when we're talking about the loss of a human. My mother, as, as, as we've said, died many, many years ago. But my sister recently got married. And, you know, we, it was just different that day, right? The loss of your mother on the day that you get married is very different than the loss of your mother when you're in your early 20s, you know. And so, of course, we had grief on that day because what it means that she's not in our life has changed. And I think, you know, when I mentioned Hannah just then, um, you know, she has now moved away, right? So I know that she's still alive, but the relationship has changed because I don't see her. And so I think it's it's easier perhaps to just think about the way that relationships change, that, that change is a part of, of life, is a part of living, and figuring out that that is a, a, a reason to enjoy what we have right now and be compassionate with others who are, who are having that really difficult experience. I think this is the sort of full circle. That, that grief is very universal, and so it helps us to understand how to live if, if we have understood loss. Absolutely. There's something else that I want to bring in. It folds into what we're talking about, is about the so-called linear journey of grief. Understand, I think it was back in the late 60s, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross brought out five stages of grief, so uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So it was groundbreaking, absolutely. And I mean, any study about grief, even to this day, including yours, is incredibly groundbreaking. What's your thoughts on, on that now? Because it's such a, a point where people go, but I, I don't feel angry, but I, then I did feel angry and then I was going okay and now I'm not going okay. And I just feel like I'm in this washing machine and I don't know how I should be feeling. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? It's, you know, remarkable the impact that, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had around the world, right? Just as you said, I mean, any, any study of grief was, was groundbreaking. And, you know, she was an amazing scientist and she did what all good scientists do initially. She described a phenomenon, right? She observed what people were experiencing. She talked with them. She asked them about their experience. And then she wrote about that, and she wrote about different experiences that that people were having, and she she sort of collected these these five experiences that came up again and again as she talked with people. I think that 
where it was meant as a description of, you know, how people feel when they have grief, it, it became a prescription, right? It became this idea of you, you had to go through these experiences in this particular order and the idea that you would have all of them. And that became really problematic because that doesn't mirror a lot of people's experience. So, you know, in, in more recent research that you're right, it came out in 1969. Um, so in much more recent research with much larger numbers of participants and, and following the same person over time, that grieving trajectory, what we know is that although overall, in general, people feel less yearning and more acceptance as time goes on, we know that it's not linear. So we know you go up and down and up and down, but in a downward direction, so to speak. And so what we know for certain, uh, what we see in, in the data is that, for example, the anniversary of a loss often comes with a really intense period of, of grief again. And where people will often feel like, I thought I was doing so well, and now I'm, you know, thinking about them all the time, and I'm, you know, tearful all the time. That's just a part of the, the up and down nature of it. It doesn't mean that you aren't integrating it into your life. It means that you're more aware of it during this period of time. And, and that's okay that we don't see that anniversary reactions have any negative consequences in the long run. And so when people are expecting that they will feel better or feel a particular way, and then they don't, they start to doubt themselves. And I think that's the, that's the really, that's the devastating part, because the vast majority of the way we react after loss is totally normal. One thing that comes up in your book, and I, I love this, it's very relevant. So many people say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be laughing at that comedy. I shouldn't be enjoying this music. Surely it gives you just a little bit of respite. Yeah, you know, we, grief comes in waves. This is its most typical form. And what that means is in between waves, we have, you know, normal everyday life. And normal everyday life comes with a whole bunch of different emotions, including laughter and joy. And I think it's, I think it is partly what you said that, you know, if we think of grieving as a form of learning, you can't just sit in a classroom all day. You're not going to learn algebra overnight if you just stay in the classroom. And, and grieving is similar in that you sort of get these doses of, oh, that's what this is like. And, oh my goodness. Okay. So this is what it means that I've lost. In between our Grieving is so stressful. Our brain, our body, it needs a break. And and so in in having those joyful and uh, you know, silly experiences, those those positive emotions, we also continue to strengthen the bonds with our living loved ones. And that's very important. It's it's no less important than reflecting on the losses that we have. And what happens inside the brain on a scientific level, go, go completely science on me, when you laugh, and then I have another question for you that's kind of associated, which is poles apart from that. I, you know, I'm not really certain what happens exactly when you laugh in the brain per se. So there's, 
all sorts of wonderful hormones that are released often when we laugh, um, opioids and, and, and that those feelings of connection with other people, they're, you know, they're important to our physical health. Being loved and comforted is, is a necessary part of our survival. It's a part of how our body functions to to feel close with others. And so having that laughter with others is, is vital to us. I want to go to the opposite end of laughter and ask you a two-part question. Firstly, what happens in the brain when we cry? And is it bad for your body to hold it in? So this may surprise you. We actually know extremely little about crying in science. We know almost nothing about why we do it and what happens and how it, how it works, if it helps. And there's very little research into crying, which is fascinating. Why, why would that be? And there are no studies of crying in bereaved people. So we have some studies of crying, but not in grief, which is the time when we most frequently think of, of crying. So that is just fascinating. And, and I, you know, I wish I could study everything. I would definitely include that on the list if it was possible. But you have another question, which is, which is about whether it's bad for your body to, to quote, hold in your, your tears or your, your feelings. And this, you know, for the most part, this comes from a, a pretty old idea, you know, sort of a Freudian idea. Freud uh, was working during the time of the steam engine. And so he had, you know, just like today we say, uh, we make metaphors that are about computers. He made metaphors that were about steam engines. And he described that if you held the steam in, that eventually it would explode and, you know, damage the, the, the vessel holding it. We don't think it works quite that way now. Emotions come in a wide range of intensities. But we have the capacity to regulate those emotions, and we do that through coping in lots of different ways. So the way we often think about it now is, is the thing that I'm doing to cope, is it making me feel better? Now, that, that's in the moment, is it making me feel better, and also in the long term. So I like to think about, <laughs> I, I've heard this uh, described as coping ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is such a great phrase, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of things we do to sort of manage our emotions. And even things like avoidance and denial, those coping strategies have a place in our life as well, right? So if you, uh, let's say you're, you're headed to your daughter's football match, and, you know, you think, you know what, right now, I'm just going to pretend this hasn't happened. I'm just going to cheer for her and be so excited for her and support her. And I'm just going to push all these thoughts of, of grief and loss out of my head. There's nothing wrong with that in the moment. That's completely appropriate for the situation. And it doesn't mean that you're somehow going to damage yourself by doing that. Now, if that's the only coping strategy that you have, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. I'm just going to push these thoughts out of my head. In the long term, you're probably going to continue to have these thoughts and feelings. And, and so it's important to have what I call a big toolkit 
of strategy. So at one moment, it may be appropriate to push those thoughts out of your head. At another moment, it may be appropriate to tell someone you're close to that you're feeling that way and cry and get a hug and and have them understand. And another time it might be appropriate to, you know, go for a walk and sort of reflect on your memories of of your relationship and sort of allow yourself to accept the reality that that is their absence and also you know, experience gratitude for the fact that you were together. So it's important to have lots of different strategies you could use and then match those to whatever's appropriate in the moment. The fact is that when we love someone, even when they're not in this physical world anymore, they're still a part of our mental life, right? They're a part of our virtual reality. And so we carry them with us, right? Because they should be in the room or or they should be a part of this conversation, or they would enjoy this, this thing we're doing. And so if that's happening on the inside, and the people around you are not having that same experience that you are, because they are not aware, they're not carrying the absence of this person, then finding a way to express that absence you're carrying, uh, something that expresses this internal experience you're having, many people find that to be very comforting. I think, you know, in a relationship, in this attachment, what it gives us is that you belong and that you matter, right? That's, that's what a relationship gives us. Even after the person is gone, they still belong and they still matter to us. And so finding alternative ways to express that 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 this person lived and they mattered and they affected me and they changed how I live in the world and that may come out as art or expressed as volunteering or you know creating doing a memorial walk or expressing that in some way i think it it's again i think it's just reflective of of the internal reality that people are experiencing and can be very helpful I have one last question for you. As an author yourself, who is another author that their writing inspires you? Other authors, you know, I think uh, Jeanette Winterson writes, uh, she wrote Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. And the way she describes relationships, that attachment, I think she just has such a, a poetic way of, of explaining the yearning that we have for, for our loved ones. And I think that the ability to turn that into words, that, that feeling into words is such a skill, such an amazing talent. Mary Frances, thank you so much for creating this episode with me. It's been such an honor and a delight. Thank you so much. And thanks for bringing this conversation to people. It's so important to talk about. To find out more about Mary Frances's work and where to purchase her book, The Grieving Brain, head to maryfrancisoconnor.org. I'll include a link in the episode description on your device.